Well, welcome everyone. Just so delighted that we could arrange this special day to conclude our almost a year of walking this path together, working with each one of the factors, winding up with mindfulness and concentration. It seemed very appropriate to come here and, you know, visit our beautiful retreat center. And maybe some of you are very familiar with it. Maybe some of you will be inspired to come and practice here sometime. So, um, I'm very delighted to be sharing this day with three good friends from the Sangha. And uh, I'll let them introduce themselves a little bit, but I just want to introduce Lori Wong. And what's interesting especially is that Lori and Shelley have been leading uh, satellite groups doing this path practice, uh, Lori in Modesto and Shelley in Santa Barbara. And some of their folks managed to be able to come. And so we have uh, our local group and our sister groups from these other towns with us today. So, uh, and Kim is a familiar to you. She taught some of the sessions during the years, long time IMC practitioner and former resident here getting things started at IRC. So if you, would you like to just say hello? We've got a few minutes and then we have some announcements. So I'm Lori and I'm happy to be here support all of you today. Um, I lead a Sangha in the Modesto area called Insight Meditation Central Valley. And uh, I think that's all I need to say. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, and I'm Shelley, and uh, as Chris mentioned, we had a satellite group in Santa Barbara doing this, and I helped lead a Sangha down there. It's called the Open Door Sangha, if you're ever in our area, the door is always open. <laughs> so that's all I have to say, really. And my name is Kim, and I'm feeling really delighted to see so many people here and just um, seeing all the faces all together. And I remember some of you from the Sundays that we had together, and I'm looking forward to meeting some of you today also. So thank you. Is Judy here? There you are. Come on up. Judy has a few announcements f uh, regarding being at IRC today. Do you want to sit? So we'll let that information sink in, and uh, we'll return to practice. And now Shelley will start our practice day with a guided meditation. Can you hear me? Am I? Is it on? Okay, great. So. I think probably we've all had a, a busy morning, whether we uh, drove here or were here overnight and, uh, and spent the morning in breakfasting and cleaning up and 
all that. So to begin, um, just be aware of what that feels like, all the residue of activity that's in your body. What it's like to be here in this room right now, just right now. And maybe we can begin to just let some of that unwind. So I think it's good to spend a little bit of time before, um, at the beginning of a, of a meditation session, just attending to your posture. It can be a way of uh, a kind of a ritual almost for um, putting yourself in the, in the meditative uh, awareness, beginning the meditative awareness. So allow your, your spine to be relatively um, upright, but relaxed, just relaxed and alert. If you're in a chair, you might not uh, wanna be leaning back against the back of the chair. You might have a support cushion behind you. And let your head be lifted so that uh, the back of the neck is long. Sometimes we talk about having a, a string tied to the crown, feeling as though we're being lifted from above, just from the crown of the head. Or you can just imagine the back of the neck being long and the, allow the front of, uh, of the chin to just be slightly tilted forward towards the chest. And that really helps with uh, tension in the upper back and the neck. Let your arms hang loosely. Let your hands be relaxed on your thighs or in your lap. And then just taking a couple of deep breaths. Allow any tension that's present in your body to begin to let go a little bit, as much as possible. You might start with the forehead, just breathing in and letting go of any tension in the forehead, in the cheeks and jaw, in the throat as you exhale. Just kind of letting it go all the residue of activity that's stored in our bodies. And the shoulders and the arms. Let the chest be open so the breath can flow in and out easily. And let the belly be soft. Let it really slump forward the belly while still maintaining uprightness in the in the posture. So being mindful, we just want to be present to what's actually occurring in the moment, right now, right here in a really kind way. 
in a non-conceptual way. Just have the direct experience of what it's like to be in our bodies just right now. Kindly. And we'll, I'll, I'll lead you in a, a breath meditation this morning. You can let your awareness be with your breath. Right where the breath is happening. Not as an observer of it from some, uh, you know, some tower in the, in the head looking down, but right with the breath as it's happening. Let the awareness be with the breath at the tip of the nose and inside the nostrils and in the soft palate in the throat, down, down into the lungs. Just allow the awareness to be with the breath through its full cycle, in, coming in, and then again as it exits the body. You might notice that it's cooler as it comes in and a little bit warmer as it as it leaves. There are lots of things to notice about the breath. As it enters the lungs, the ribs expand, the ribs in the front and the ribs in the back. As the diaphragm moves down, pulling the breath into the body, the belly often expands. And as the diaphragm lets go, as the diaphragm contracts, it pulls the the breath into the body. And then as it lets go, the breath naturally moves out, up through all those passageways again, and you can feel it coming in and going out. Each breath arises, each in-breath arises, and then at the top of it, it passes away. And then the out-breath begins to arise. The air moves out, and that breath passes away. And this goes on. As long as we're alive, this is happening. So let the breath be in the forefront of your awareness. Coming in and going out.
as you continue meditating, at some point you'll probably become aware that there's thinking going on and you're, you've lost the connection to the breath. And when you notice that, you can just return to being with the breath, allowing the breath to be received by your awareness. Just keeping the breath in the foreground of your attention. Following it all the way in and all the way out.
Again, if there's thinking, if you find yourself lost, it's okay, it's natural. Just let the breath be in the foreground again. And let your awareness be with the breath all the way in, all the way out as it moves in this rhythmic way, whether it's short or long, whether it's rough or smooth. Just be with it.
again. If there's thinking, if there's restlessness, if there's boredom, whatever is happening, it's okay. Let it be. And let the breath be in the foreground of your awareness. The whole breath, the whole in-breath, and the whole out-breath.
So please feel free to stand up and stretch if that would feel good to you right now. And uh, then I'll offer a short talk on the theme of the day. At the end of nine months of working together and studying this path, looking deeply into our own hearts and minds, how these factors are playing out in our own experience. What I want to talk about as a theme for the day is, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the program, the spiraling, deepening, ongoing nature of this path and how it really cultivates wisdom and insight and, you know, then puts that back into being able to stay on the path and walk the path more deeply. This is my third time through this program, three years in a row, and it's quite amazing to me that every time it seems deeper. This year it's like each month the factor of the month would just sort of arise and little lessons would arise and it would come to mind. It was very joyful to be going over this material again. I'm reminded of this place I go a lot in New Mexico to practice a beautiful uh, uh, lodge in Taos, New Mexico. In fact, I'm going next week. And uh, they have a labyrinth that they've it's a three-acre, four-acre piece of property, and they've constructed out of stone a labyrinth. And then around that, what they call a prayer path that wanders all over the property with little stations where you can stop and meditate on things like compassion, service, faith, discipline. Kind of a Christian flavor of the same sort of thing that we're working with here. And what's so beautiful about it, so you walk the maze, and you know how those mazes are. You can't, you're always a little surprised how they turn out. And then you walk the path and wander all over this path. And at the far reach of the path is this really interesting little hut in the theme of the Mexican Day of the Dead with, uh, you know, all sorts of kind of voodoo things suggesting that you really need to confront your demons and, you know, maybe leave them in this place. And then you work your way back through love and compassion. And finally, the last station of the path is peace. And it's brought you all the way back to the maze. And I'm noticing, but it's, you know, it's elevated. So you can sit on this uh, bench and look out over the maze. And just having that perspective of where you started, you know, where you really didn't know what you were doing maybe. And now you come back and you can see it. So, you know, it's only about two feet higher maybe. (laughs) So maybe you only feel like you've got a two feet of perspective on all this stuff that we've studied all year. But it is a lifetime practice. What I want to do in this talk is just, it's like we've taken this chain of jewels out of the frame and studied it all year. And I want to put it back in the frame, which is the framework of the Four Noble Truths. This is, the path is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is the truth of Dukkha. And we had quite a discussion the other day at our training group about the meaning of Dukkha. It's often translated as suffering, And I'm sure that you've encountered a lot of what you might consider suffering in the course of this year. But the path, this word, it's kind of interesting to leave it untranslated because so much of what we're discovering is what is meant by this. You know, things happen that we don't like. So there's the understanding that it's the facts of life, right? That loss happens and unsatisfactory things happen. Tragedies happen as they did last week. And so there's that. And then there's just this pervasive unease. You know, things aren't as good as they could be. Things I could, I could get a better job. I could find a different 
thing to have for breakfast or, you know, anything that's just that little restlessness that just keeps you out of the present moment, keeps you leaning into, how can I fix this? How can I change that? So um, one translation that's quite applicable at the more general end of the scale might be the difference between ease, feeling at ease with what's happening, and just this sense of unease or dissatisfaction. At the other end, it could be the difference between struggling and and despair with some great tragedy or really being able to find some compassion and peace of mind around the facts of what happens in our lives. Important aspects of these, they're called truths, which sounds like we're supposed to believe them or take them on as a a kind of tenets that we believe. But it's very interesting in some of the teachings that there are actually considered to be four practices and there are four verbs that are associated with each one of these. So the truth of dukkha is to be understood. And that's a lot of what we've been doing this year is looking at what is it in our intentions, our speech, our actions, how, how, how is this unease and this unsatisfactoriness expressing itself? And what exactly is it about it that's workably un- unpleasant, you know? So then the second truth is the truth that this kind of dukkha that the Four Noble Truths are talking about is caused by craving, clinging, grasping, struggling. It's caused by something in our relation, the way we're relating to what's happening is actually giving rise to that inner experience that is called dukkha. And the third truth is the truth that this kind of suffering can cease. It can come to an end. This is called the truth of cessation, the cessation of suffering, and it is to be realized. And I really want to spend some time uh, this morning on that because I'm sure during the year that you've all had little tastes of actually what is meant by that. You might have skipped right over them, but you know it's important to begin to highlight what you have learned this year in terms of the real, of really realizing what's meant by my the contribution of how I'm relating to what's happening and how is shifting to that uh, a reduction or a release in suffering. And then the fourth truth is the truth of the path, and the path is to be cultivated. So it's to be cultivated in order to further and more deeply realize the cessation of suffering. But then another thing to understand is that where is it a path to? Well, it's a path to deeper and deeper cessation. But what do you do with deeper and deeper cessation? Well, you're more and more able to manifest the qualities that we're studying on the path as just who you are. And that's what we're really, what is really ceasing is the the deep-rooted tendencies toward grasping and pushing away greed, hatred, ill will, aversion, and ignorance, delusion, you know, thinking that things, that things work in a way that they don't, thinking that happiness lies in a direction that it doesn't. So when you've completely uprooted that, all your motivation for harsh speech or unwise action or killing or making a living doing any of those things or, you know, being mindless and ignoring something that's going on, all the motivations that fuel those um, unwholesome actions are sort of dried up. And so what's left is uh, an, an inspiration to simply be on, the, be walking the path as a way of life. So 
one, what I want to highlight out of all these different practices that we've done, everything that we've looked at this year, is this orientation toward beginning to see our experience in terms of is this heading toward dukkha or toward, not dukkha, toward ease or toward unease. Because we're so used to navigating our life in terms of what am I going to get out of this? Is this going to be fun or not fun or pleasant or not pleasant or tasty or is it going to last and how can I make it safe and you know all the ways that we think about orienting. What if we are slowly learning to orient and guide our lives by am I tensing up and grasping around this? Am I struggling with this or am I learning some ease to be with what's happening? So I find that the more I practice that this is becoming to be almost like a new sense. It's a kind of holistic sense. The Buddha doesn't teach it this way. I'm just saying I think of it this way. But it's kind of like a holistic extra sense of, you know, am I, am I tightening up and getting more narrow or am I relaxing? You know, and you can, it's a, it's a, it's a turning from struggling with the external world and looking at the what's happening out there, what other people are doing, how it's going to be, who I'm going to be, who was I, all that. Looking at that as a source of happiness to looking inward. So it could be that you've seen things like maybe somebody says something to you that you find insulting or frustrating in some way. How long does that stay with you? How quickly do you recognize, oh, this is one of those things that I can either grasp onto and stew about all day or, oh, we have a practice for that. You know, I can notice that this is, you know, maybe some compassion for, you know by now what generates harsh speech. You must have seen a lot of it in yourself, right? So that's what's going on in the other person. One of those things has arisen in the other person's mind and they've said something harsh. And now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to let it ruin your day or are you going to let it go? And right there is a moment of the potential of suffering or not suffering. You could start to look at your mind states, you know, when when you're, it's so interesting to me, this is probably the greatest joy for me over the long years of practice. It's like I have this permanent hobby of looking at my mind. <laughs> and whenever I'm in a bad mood or something's going on, it's like, oh, you know, it's a little bit the same feeling of, oh, there's a interesting movie out or something, you know. That's something I could look at and see what's going on and really try to understand and work with it. And there's confidence that it's, it's going to be interesting, whatever it is, and I'll learn something about myself. So, you know, that's a very different move than always running away and just being pushed around and have to fix this, have to distract myself, have to turn away from it. So turning toward it. So I've been really, you know, very touched in my heart, as I'm sure we all have, by the events this last week in Charleston as an example of, you know, some, some, something that's really at the, at the heavy end of suffering. So is it possible that we can know the value, see the value of our practice in relation to an event like that? So we are really you know, pioneers on the edge of trying to understand the roots of hatred, the roots of perceiving people in categories that have nothing to do with who they really are, right? We're really investigating that very deeply for ourselves. And 
the meditation that people have done is slowly making its way into mainstream understanding and maybe that will slowly make its way into some better way to teach and raise children and you know the knowledge that we're gaining here as kind of the pioneers of personal inner subjective research I think is it's really a contribution that we're making to the long-term view of what's going on in situations like this and then also we have the path to turn to we have good intentions to turn to we have the practices of metta and compassion and we can really look at you know be doubly inspired to use our own speech wisely in talking speaking about this and speaking to others so uh, the practice in beginning to really zoom in on when you're heading towards dukkha and when you're heading away from dukkha it's got a lot to do with a sort of felt sense of tightening up or the mental state of going blank and turning away you know turning a blind eye and so you can become more and more sensitive to this I find that it helps often you know we're noticing after the fact I've said something um, that I wish I hadn't said or I've done an action that I wish I hadn't done so I find it very helpful to just sometimes review in my mind what what it was like to have done that what part of my mind was turned off in what way did I was I hurrying too fast was I carried away on a on a wave of kind of egotistic blah 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 that turned into something unskillful what exactly was the energy behind that and just kind of feel that so that the next time maybe I'm more familiar when that arises and the other day Lori was suggesting reminding me of a practice that I've done sometimes which is the reverse of that maybe you can do it ahead of time if you're facing a difficult situation you can really bring to mind an image of what someone you have a lot of respect for maybe your idea of an enlightened being or someone like someone who inspires you the Dalai Lama what would this person do how would this person carry themselves into that situation you know and really get in touch with what is that settled open clear-minded open-hearted state that it's possible to bring to a situation and just beginning to get a feel for this so as we become attuned to this kind of checking then being on the path the path is a guide for our continuing practice and the factors of the path are also in a sense they become the deepening fruits of the practice and they become sort of <coughs> refuges in a way so I find I just want to talk a little about how the different factors of the path could be considered to be refuges the first factor you may remember you may have forgotten way back when was right view right the understanding and that's the understanding of the Four Noble Truths the understanding that the mind and body are things that we can work with they're phenomenon that we can examine and work with the understanding that things are impermanent you know and that where our personalities are quite a jumble of all kinds of different states of mind and behaviors and I find this kind of a refuge just think back of that understanding oh right you know when something goes wrong right this is what the Buddha said it was like so you know it's a, it's a great uh, ease to my heart that so far nothing that's happened has been outside the Dharma or in any way disproved 
you know, the Buddha's view of things. Yep, things are impermanent. Yep, there's suffering. Yep, my sense of self can be kind of all over the place and doesn't necessarily the same from one day to the next. And, you know, it's, it's not a very fruitful question trying to figure out who I am. All that seems, all that seems true. You know, and so in a way, when I find myself up against that, I can turn to the view and say, okay, right, you know, this is, this is deepening my understanding of the view. Understanding, bring, being able to sense and commit to your own good intentions is a tremendous refuge because part of the understanding is that there's so many times when we really can't affect the actual outcome of what happens, but we can know that we're bringing good intentions to it. You know, you can, when something goes wrong, you can go look back at your intentions. If they weren't the best, you can intend to do better in the future. And that's something that is really a practice that's very much within our ability to work with. And then the ethical section of the path, speaking, action, and livelihood. The more we practice, the more this becomes inwardly motivated. You know, we all have a lot of shoulds and a lot of understanding of what we are supposed to do and how it's supposed to be, and I should be good. And so it's quite different taking that from an external, you know, ideal that you're somehow failing to live up to, to really, oh, this is what I want. This is, what I, this is what's meaningful to me. So, of course, I'm going to try to behave that way. And really feeling it in your more, much more embodied, rooted part of who we are. And also knowing that our practice that can sometimes look so private as we sit with our eyes closed on our cushions quietly, knowing that it has, is deeply rooted in this ethical component and it is related to what's happening in the world and that we are practicing in order to be agents of safety for other people, places of safety for other people and, you know, able to model and bring, bring out these qualities that the world needs so badly. I already mentioned a little bit how I look at effort, which is sort of like uh, playing in the garden of the mind. You know, if you want, if you want to like that metaphor, you know, you're, you're doing some weeding, you're planting seeds of things that you want to grow, you're seeing, oh, look what's come up, you know, that's easier than it was last time. And so there are so many ways in that you can really work with your own mind. It's a, it's a hobby. <laughs> Uh, I find more and more in terms of mindfulness that mindfulness is, is a great form of safety. You know, there's, I don't feel so much like I'm about to be sabotaged by my own tendencies anymore. So it's like having that perspective as somewhat of a, a view of an open field or a, a view from a little hill where you can really see a lot of landscape. And you can see what's coming and you can sense your tendencies to react. Maybe you can begin to sense them coming in your body at the early stages when they come along and then you're not so likely to be ambushed by them. You know, knowing what you're going to do, you're not just going to charge into a situation and do something that you'll regret later. So in that way, I find uh, that mindfulness is a great refuge. You know, it's easy to take mindfulness as, oh, I didn't pay attention, I didn't notice that, or something, but it's for your own benefit, you know. It's really, oh, let me just see what's happening inwardly and outwardly. Be a source of safety to others by being mindful in what you do, and a source of safety to yourself by being aware, like when that inner critic voice is firing up and yelling at you, that that's just a phenomenon that you can be mindful of. You're a little bit safe from your own inner stuff.
And then the practice of concentration has the potential to bring a really harmless form of pleasure to body and mind. Deep well-being, a deep taste of the peace that's possible on the path. And as we taste that, it becomes easier to believe and trust in letting go. So practicing in this way leads to these deepening insights. And it really opens the way for deeply freeing insight. There's a version of these teachings that makes explicit how the path spirals around and comes back through deeper wisdom into a deeper view. It's called the tenfold path. So there are two extra factors, and those factors are called right knowledge and right release. And they're really talking about particularly uh, strong and impactful versions of just what we've been talking about. Right knowledge is the knowledge of the fact of what, uh, what dukkha is and what dukkha isn't. It's not a truth or it's not an intellectual understanding, but it's this direct knowing that sort of accumulates to various kind of tipping points. I don't know if you've heard that theory, but you know, little accumulations happen and suddenly, oh, you know, something really becomes clear in a very uh, deeply known way. So there's a something the Buddha says here. For one who is concentrated, there is no need to intend, may I know and see things as they really are. It is a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. So when the mind gets very still and we're mindful and we're awake and we're just seeing moment to moment, it becomes very clear when a thought comes up and whether we grab onto it and start to worry about it or whether we just let it go. And the more concentrated you are, the more you can see very clearly what that is and the peace of just letting it go. That safe, the feeling of safety and being able to rest while phenomenon come and go that, don't, that you don't have to take them up. So it's interesting... Um, you know, we start out, we know things on all kinds of different levels. As I was saying, there's a kind of refuge in view, just in the intellectual understanding that, yes, this is the way it's said to be. And then there's really, just for a, a little flavor on this right knowledge, I think sometimes of my dad who smoked cigarettes for 50 years. He knew perfectly well. There's no way he didn't know that this was bad for him, right? And he tried to quit and tried to quit. and. Nobody doesn't know that that's bad for you. And then one day, his doctor thought he saw a little spot on his lung. It turned out to be nothing, but from that day forward, he never touched another cigarette. You know, so that's knowing. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to think, yeah, yeah, yeah. And another thing, whoa, they mean me. You know, this is, this is for real. So it can be a little bit like that at some point where we suddenly realize, I'm, I'm just done with this. I'm just done with continuing to look for a certain kind of pleasure or continuing to try to run away from a certain situation or, you know, I'm just done with it. And it kind of comes to you. It's not something you can make happen. It happens as an accumulation of gradual little observations. It's very interesting to see the mind as a, as a kind of force of energy that just turns away sometimes. You know, I used to be very envious of certain situations and it's, it was so so empowering. The first time I saw someone said something that would have provoked this whole envy story. And it's like 
It's like, I saw something like, uh, nope. And it just <laughs> fell back, you know? It's like, le- like that circus thing where you hit the ball and it goes up and tries to hit the bell. You know, it, it just, no. <laughs> it's not going to do it. And it's, you know, ever since then, it's been weaker and weaker and weaker. It just doesn't hit the bell anymore. And it's, uh, you know, it's just interesting to feel that happen and to realize something has learned, you know, something has really learned deep down at the wellsprings of what actually happens, you know, because we can intend till we're blue in the face to let something go and it doesn't let go until we've seen clearly enough that something kind of subconscious lets go. So this direct knowing, it's really deepening both ways. It's deepening the pointlessness of engaging in suffering and it's deepening our deep satisfaction with how good it feels not to pick that up. The trust that it's safe to trust not trying to manage everything that's happening in the world, manage everybody we know, make everything come out just the way we want it to. Understanding that that's safe. So this is right knowledge and then right knowledge leads to right release. I was talking a little bit about both. The, the Buddha's likes very fine understanding of what happens. So the moment that the right knowledge sort of tips over, then the right release can happen. There's a little description in the suttas comparing right release to, uh, it's like a pot that you turn it over, it gives up its water, and it doesn't take it back. It's like a turned over, a turned over pot, right? It's like seeing how a magic trick is done. Once you've seen it, once you've seen through it, you don't go back to believing it. You can't unknow something that you've really learned in this way. If you see that this rope is a snake, I mean that the snake is a rope, then <laughs> then you're not you're simply not afraid to go in the shed anymore because you know what it is, right? So, um the path in the Theravadan tradition and for most people according to what our teacher's experience is, is that it unfolds in stages. So there's a kind of understanding, there's a kind of conviction that grows into a a deep-seated intellectual understanding that this is the way things are, that this is the path to practice, this is the way to look at things, and you know, you can't go back to really believing that, no, forget that, what I really need is, you know, to get a job at Club Med or something, and then I'll be happy for the rest <laughs> of my life. You, know, you think, well, you know, and then I've seen that, you know, I, I, I mean, of course I still make plans, but whenever I catch myself investing, over-investing, and this is going to do it, you know, no, you know, mindfulness and is going to do it. <laughs> Practicing the path is going to do it. And so that tendency to over-invest in expectations of what's going to make us permanently happy can drop away. And then, but then we're still left with deep, you know, biological drives of food and sex and survival and all kinds of things. It takes a long time to really work through those and get some deeper, deeper layers uh, more and more convinced. And this is where concentration is really, really helpful because you need to have that pleasure, that deep, satisfying sense of calm that can really allay some of that, you know, really deep needing for something else to satisfy you. And then the last layer is very subtle identifications with the sense of self and being the one that experience is happening to and the one who's doing things and, you know, just uh, a little conceit, what's called conceit, just meaning comparing yourself, thinking, oh, I'm this way, they're that way, not really getting it, 
without having to stop and think it through again, that, oh, that doesn't make any sense because, you know, it's been a million seconds since yesterday and I've been, you know, whatever's been happening is what you've been, you aren't something, you know. It takes a long time to really let that profitably sink in so that it gives you a sense of freedom around even being concerned with that sort of thing. Um, One understanding, it's interesting to look at the different ways that these things unfold. There are moments of great insight. You know, you might be sitting and suddenly, you know, something like this happens. And then there's often the experience that it, you feel like you've lost touch with it and you need to see it again and gradually cultivate. So, you know, sudden insight, gradual cultivation is one model. Gradual insight that slowly reaches a tipping point and suddenly, not even suddenly, you might not even notice. You might just be, oh, gee, I haven't worried about that for a year. And, you know, it seems fairly remote that you would ever worry about it again. There's another uh, uh, simile in the suttas about a ship with rigging and how it's in all the different weather and it's cold weather and it's hot weather and slowly, slowly, slowly the ropes begin to rot and they will certainly give way, you know, as it continues to be exposed to the weather. So this uh, kind of rotting rigging analogy (laughs) is... uh, That's the way I mostly experience it. Little things just get less, you know, and they get less. They're letting go slowly, slowly, slowly. And then finally, the path itself, you know, is an expression of the awakened mind. So the path is going somewhere, and where it's going is to itself as as just the naturally arising way to be in respect to all these qualities. At our meeting the other day, um, Andrea was sharing some, to me, really inspiring readings from this very early sutta, where it's called the At. Takavaga Sutra. And it's one of the very earliest ones. She said it's even before the Eightfold Path was kind of codified and included in the teachings. But somebody asked the Buddha, tell me about the Supreme Person. And he says, a person who is not angered, not frightened, not boastful, not fretful, who gives wise advice, who is calm, restrained in speech, a person who is not attached to the future, who does not sorrow over the past, who finds solitude amid sense contact, a person who is not deceitful, not covetous, not greedy, not impudent, not arousing contempt, does not engage in malicious speech, not arrogant, mild and of ready wit, not credulous, by whom nothing is repelled, who is even-tempered, ever-attending, does not suppose that in the world he or she is equal, superior, or inferior, who is free of conceit. This is someone I call peaceful. So this is an expression of simply living life, having walked this path so long that it's who you are in the world. Thank you. So we have a 15-minute or even less little walking period break here. It's not so. Uh, 